Good evening, folks. Good to be with you. Welcome to church. Let me add my welcome to Graham's. I've met a couple of visitors. Welcome if you're first time. Welcome if this is your umpteenth time to church. It's great to be in God's presence. Um, we're on a journey. Um, in the last few weeks, we've been started a, a new mini-series just looking at our vision and who we are as a church and where we're going. So we talk each of these five weeks. This is week three now. We're talking about some of the big things we really believe in and some of the things we really want everyone to be on board with uh, so that we can move as one as a church. Uh, before we go over there, let's just pray and ask God to help us. Father, thank you. We're in your very presence. Thank you that you love everyone here. I pray this evening, God, that you would speak to us. Help me to share all that you've placed in my heart. And I pray that what we say will really make a long-term difference in this church and in these individual lives. And ultimately in this city for your glory. In Jesus' name. Amen. So we've been doing a series, we've been called it uh, Our Gospel, and this is the week three board, you can't see them down there, but um, if you were here in the morning service, you'd have seen down there, there's the week one and two, so you don't get a chance to cheat like the morning service does, so let me just ask you uh, if you can remember the previous week. So week one was the gospel changes lives, and we said three words, can you remember what the three words were? Pray, care, share. Well done. So we talked about how we want every member of our church to have a passion for people who don't yet know God. And we encourage people to pray. So have, get your hands out. Have five people that you can think of that every day you just lift them before God. You pray. Even if it's a minute for each person. Hey, good to see you. Pray. And then secondly, care. Think of practical ways you can demonstrate God's love to people. And that often opens up a way for conversations to happen about deeper things. And then thirdly, share. There comes a moment where you share your story or tell them about Jesus. Or, and we engage with people. I know that's scary. And I know we're told not to talk about religion in public. That's, that's not polite. But stuff them. Because we've got the greatest gift ever. Because people need to hear about Jesus Christ. And this is a life-giving message. So I want us to be a bold church. Not an arrogant church, but a bold church who confidently share about Jesus in a city that desperately, really desperately, even though they don't know it, desperately need to know about Jesus. So that's week one, our gospel changes lives. Week two, we called it gospel creates family. And we had a key verse, you remember? Acts 2.42. We looked way back at the early church, how they grew into thousands of people, and yet they didn't just gather in huge crowds, they gathered in house to house. And in the houses, here's what they did, Acts 2.42. There's four words I wrote on the board. Can you remember what they were? Help me. Teaching. Teaching. Fellowship. This man's done his homework, breaking breads. And prayer, that's right. She got the last one, sorry, man. Okay, so breaking breads, teaching, fellowship, and prayer. So we talked about how on Sundays, we gather on Sundays, sure, we've got five services uh, in three locations, soon to be four locations in February, and we, we gather on Sundays. That's great. But we also gather through the week in things we call small group. And we talked about, well, what happens in a small group? Well, there's teaching, there's Bible study, there's fellowship. There's breaking of bread and prayer, and it is a life-transforming environment. So this week, we're just going to continue on looking again at the importance of small group, but in a slightly different way. And before I talk about that, we're going to show a quick film clip of a couple of people in the church's experience with small groups. So cue the clip. Like so many of us, I grew up going to church. But when I came to Destiny, I realized the importance and the value of being part of a small group. Uh, growing up as a teenager, I had lots of different challenges, lots of temptations in my life. And being part of a small group really showed me that I wasn't the only one who struggled. And so as I learned to be vulnerable, and as, as others were vulnerable as well, and we did life together, um, it was empowering. It helped me uh, find freedom, uh, find great community, and build great friendships that have lasted years. Um, so that's been my journey of small groups, and I've loved it. It's not always easy but neither is life, um, and so it's definitely worthwhile being part of a small group. So, small groups, where do I start? For me, it's been one of the most amazing things about being part of this church. For me, it's family, it's um, being with people that really love me and care for me, and from the outset, I made a commitment in my heart to really invest myself into the group and I can honestly say that every single week I really you know would not miss it for the world because I just love being there I, I, I love the people that are there and they are an encouragement to me they are so inspirational and uh, they, they're also there to support me and um, an example of that would be recently I've been 
feeling that I want to serve in an area in the church and it's been difficult to do that because I have two small kids but they have really said no I can, we can help you with that and go for it and it has really been um, encouraging me into that so for me it's like that's a really practical way where my uh, small group has been a blessing to me. Hi everyone, um, as a family we've benefited so much from small group. It's been a time to always fellowship with people within the community. We've got friends coming in with our kids to spend time with us, um, to dine and um, share the word of God. It also helped us to mature in the word of God so that each and everyone can express him or herself within the same group and we all have fun within it. And we also feel that we are being accountable to each other because people can phone and find out how are you and why didn't you come to church. And we feel we are part of this great commission and this great family. We love it. Be part of a small group. God bless you. Thank you. So to be honest, I don't really need to say much else tonight. <laughs> They've said it all. Um, they sum up very simply the importance of a small group. It's life-changing. Any Trekkies here tonight? Anyone like Star Trek? Okay, three people. Yeah, glad you didn't just have your hand up there. I'm glad it's two weirdos. That's great. Uh, I put my hand up just to illustrate what you had to do. Okay, but way back in 1967, there was an episode of Star Trek called The Trouble with the Tribbles. Anyone saw The Trouble with the Tribbles? Here's, here's, a, here's a picture of it. I don't know if we've got that there, Patrick. Um, maybe not. Uh, but The Trouble with the Tribbles was, was this the Tribbles were very little furry animals. And the Tribbles suddenly started multiplying rapidly in the spaceship Starship Enterprise. And before they knew it, these, these Tribbles were becoming huge trouble because they were filling everything because they just kept replicating. And what, the reason they kept replicating is because they were born pregnant. So there you go. The special effects were awesome uh, way back then. Uh, and they were, they were born pregnant. That's why they kept multiplying. In fact, McCoy made the comment that the Tribbles, all they do is eat and reproduce. Sounds like some of you. All they do is eat and reproduce, and therefore they just keep replicating, and before they know it, they, they, so they were a real trouble, but they were born pregnant. I remember, coming, you know, there's a famous Bible verse, Jesus, at the early stages of his ministry, he said this in Matthew chapter 4, verse 19, Jesus said, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. To me, that sounds like we're born pregnant. Sounds like when you follow Jesus, there's going to be something within you that causes other people to follow Jesus. Isn't that interesting? Follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. Scientists have debated, well, what is it that makes something alive as opposed to something that's dead? And some scientists have put it down to very simply, something that is alive has an ability to multiply and reproduce. It's a definition of being alive. And I think, I guess you could say a definition of being alive as a believer, a follower of Jesus, is you have this inbuilt, you, I guess you're born pregnant, you're born with this inbuilt ability to replicate and help others find and follow Jesus. You know, I remember actually this verse, follow me and I'll make you fish. That verse was one of the first verses that echoed around in my soul before I was even a follower of Jesus. I heard those words read in a church one time and those were the words that they haunted me because I just knew that Jesus was calling me to follow him. And I don't know you all tonight, but let me just throw out there that maybe you're here tonight and you're not yet a follower of Jesus. Following Jesus is the greatest adventure you could ever go on in your life. It isn't necessarily easy, but nothing great is. Following Jesus is the best thing you can do. And put it this way, he loves you more than you could ever love yourself. He's got a better plan for you than the one you could come up with for yourself. And he's the one who died for you and rose again to make it possible for you to know him and have eternal life. So don't live another day without following Jesus. I urge you, follow Jesus, Jesus said, I will make you fishers of men. That's what Jesus said at the beginning of his three-year ministry. Now, what did he say at the end of his three-year ministry? Jesus lived this awesome life, taught great things, died on the cross for our sins. And the third day he resurrected and before he ascended back to the Father, he gave the disciples a commission. It's recorded for us in Matthew 28, verse 18 to 20. Jesus said, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you, and surely I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Isn't it interesting that at the start of Jesus' ministry, he said, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. 
And at the end of Jesus' ministry, he says, go and disciples make disciples. It's that whole idea of replication, multiplication. A disciple, I guess you could quite simply say, is a follower of Jesus who helps others find and follow Jesus. That's what it means to be a disciple. And I believe God's calling is for every disciple to make disciples. Every follower to help others become followers and to be fisher of men. I guess we've got to multiply everything. Churches should plant churches. Shouldn't just exist unto themselves. Churches that are alive should replicate. That's why we are launching new locations. We've got, this is a fourth location launching in February. And God willing, we'll be able to launch a few more between now and 2020. And then, God willing, beyond 2020 into the decades ahead. We are called to replicate. Churches plant churches. Small groups should plant small groups. Believers should help other people become believers. Disciples should make disciples. Preachers should raise up other preachers. That's what I was doing this afternoon. I was doing some preaching training with up-and-coming preachers. So basically, you've got to reproduce everything. Don't just exist unto yourself, but reproduce everything. And when it, let's talk specifically about small groups in our church. Um, just like a body has cells, so also the body of Christ has cells. And the cells that replicate in this church are called small groups, where people gather for study, for fellowship, for prayer, and for breaking of bread. And just like you've heard there, it is a life-changing environment that happens every week in our church in various locations, or living rooms, or coffee shops, all around this city. You're welcome to get connected. Then we have about 1,200 people, including kids, actively connected with our church, actively connected. Uh, On any given Sunday, we have half to two-thirds of them turning out. Now, We only have about 35 small groups. That's a tiny number of small groups for the number of people connecting with our church. Our goal is to see the 35 small groups become 53 small groups by Easter. So I'm asking every single one of us to connect in a small group. And I'm going to get you to prayerfully consider that. And at the end of this message, I just want you to respond to that. Will you do it? Will you connect in a small group or potentially start a small group? Why would this be important for the church? It really does make a difference. You know, church growth is important. But let me tell you that you don't need to worry about church growth if you can deal with church health. And church health is completely linked with small groups. So you get strong, healthy small groups moving as one, flowing together, making disciples. Church health will happen. And if church health happens, church growth will happen. Ed Stetzler, he's he's the president of... Uh, of an organization called Lifeway Research, uh, and and he's also a Bible teacher. And he was asked by a a large church in Tennessee in America, it has about 9,000 members, he was asked to stand in for a six-week period to preach for six weeks because the senior pastor was having an operation. So Ed Stetzel was asked to stand in for the senior pastor. And so he came with a kind of six-week series of messages that he was going to bring in that time And he preached these messages. Tragically, the senior pastor didn't recover from the operation. It was fully expected he would recover, but he didn't recover. And he actually died shortly after the operation. And this left the church without their pastor, which is a a dreadful place to be at. And Ed Stetzler was approached by the elders of the church. Listen, Ed, would you consider being our interim pastor until we can appoint a full-time pastor to replace the one who's died? So Ed reluctantly said, yes, I'll do that. And he was reluctant because he knew that if you've had a a famous preacher in a church that's had 9,000 people in it and then he dies, he knows what happens in that church. Typically, what will happen is the numbers will dwindle and Ed was thinking, man, I'm going to be the interim pastor and the numbers are going to drop on my watch. This doesn't look good. But the numbers didn't drop. In fact, the numbers grew during that period of uncertainty. And Ed Stetzler, on reflection on it and based on research that he and Lifeway Research have carried out, he says... The reason that church grew, even though it went through that turbulent time, was this. 94% of the 9,000 people who connect with the church were in small group. 94%. And it's interesting. There was an Indian pastor commenting to a Western pastor one time. He says, in the West, if you invite a big-name speaker and get a band, you'll be able to draw a crowd. In India, we just say, we're going to gather to pray, and the crowd gathers. And he says, and so the danger in the West is this, if the big name speaker or the band isn't there, then all of a sudden your people don't come. But actually, we want to have a, would we not say we want to have a far more robust 
and more biblical and deeper foundation for our fellowship than just the big name speaker in the band. We want to be a church that is built around Jesus Christ. He's the, he's the superstar among us and that we are in groups called small group, which is a discipleship forum. And we gather on Sundays and we gather in small groups and we are disciples who help other people become disciples and Jesus is our hero. That's why we do this thing called church. Um, in Russia, when the communists came to power way back in 1917 under Lenin, they, they decided to take out Christianity and impose an atheist regime and they killed a number of key church leaders in closed church buildings now in russia the church model was based very much on the western church model where it was a a pastor and a congregation and by doing that by killing some key pastors and closing buildings they effectively made a huge negative impact on christianity in russia however in china the same thing happened in 1949 when mao caused the communist revolution to take place there and they also killed some key leaders and imprisoned some key leaders and closed churches. However, in contrast to Russia, things didn't stop. In fact, in China, the, under the communist oppression, the church grew to over 100 million members. And this happened because in China, they weren't built on a model where everything was dependent on a congregation and a pastor, but it was built on a model where people understood the importance and value of discipleship in a small group environment. And that's what makes growth sustainable. And if you look in the book of Acts, that's why things grew there, even when they were kicked out of the temple courts, even when they faced the persecution, people were gathering in small groups and praying. And that's what brings transformation. So we want to have not just 35 small groups, that's piddly for the size of church we are. And even 53 is a dent in the, a tiny number, but it's, it's a start. We want to get to 53 small groups by Easter, and that means some of you are going to start small groups. You think, well, I'm just going to new to the church. I know, that's fine. That's okay. I didn't say today. Like, next week's fine. But some of you are going to start small groups. Some of you, all of you want to be in small groups, because I don't want you just to be one of those Christians who say, I believe all this stuff, and no one holds you accountable or helps you grow. I want you to be one of those believers who really believe it and you're in community and your life is transformed and you're becoming all that God intends for you to be. That's what I want. And this city needs that kind of people. It needs disciples who make disciples. So how are we going to do that? Well, it's very easy. It's as easy as one, two, three. Number one, we're going to form small groups. Number two, we're going to mature those small groups. And then number three, we're going to multiply those small groups. So number one, forming, stage one. What is the forming of a small group? Well, very simply, the aim in this stage is to gather people, group members, and start building a healthy small group. What would go on during that time? Well, it's what we talked about last week. We do the Acts 2, chapter 42 patterns where we teach, we study the Bible together, we have fellowship, we break bread, and we pray. That's what we do. And then we, we, people start gathering, they start to get to know this. It's all about welcoming new people in and we form this group. This early stage forming of a group should only take one to three months and, and it's such an important and key stage. It's welcoming anyone, different backgrounds, different age groups, different cultures. It's welcoming people into this group that we formed, a small group. Jesus formed a group. He did stage one forming. And you look at the group he formed. So we had, he had Peter. Now, my experience with anyone with a name called Peter is potentially trouble, okay? Uh, Peter was impulsive. He was, he was the guy who was always up for things, but sometimes made some big blunders, okay? He was Peter. That was in part of Jesus' small group. Then there was Thomas, and he's known forever as the doubter. Imagine that. You want to be Graham the faith-filled, right? But you Thomas the doubter. That's a rubbish association to have, but he was part of Jesus' team. You had Simon, who was a zealot. That was a political activist. It'd be like um, Graham, the SNP member. You know, it's, it's such an extreme environment. Uh, they, they had um, this group of people, and then it was Judas, the betrayer, and, and they, they were, uh, Matthew was a tax collector. Tax collectors were, I mean, that, that was a corrupt environment to work in. It'd be like you saying, I work for the Royal Bank of Scotland. It was such a negatively viewed uh, profession. You know, I'm just having a laugh. At the expense of Royal Bank of Scotland and SNP. So Jesus, that's, this is Jesus' small group. This was his forming stage. Jesus, you sure? You're really going to take on the world with this? But he did. Forming. Andrew Carnegie, who was, at, at a time, he was the wealthiest man in America. And he was actually a Scottish-born philanthropist. 
He, he grew up, uh, but he, he moved across to America in his childhood. He grew up in America, and he did different odd jobs initially, but eventually moved into the steel industry, and he became the world's largest steel manufacturer um, based in the United States. And at one point, he had 43 millionaires working for him. Now, a millionaire today is quite a thing, but way back then, a millionaire was something that was even more incredible. And he had 43 of them working for him. And a, a journalist came to him and, and asked him, uh, Mr. Carnegie, how on earth were you able to attract these millionaires to come and work for you? And he said, no, no, they weren't millionaires before they worked for me. They became millionaires as they worked for me. And the journalist was take, quite taken aback by that. He said, okay, wow. Well, then let me ask you, Mr. Carnegie, how is it that you can see such value in someone to the point where you would justify such a high salary that they would become millionaires. And Dale Carnegie replied, and so Andrew Carnegie replied and said this. He said that men are developed in the same way that gold is mined. When gold is mined, several tons of dirt must be removed to get one ounce of gold. One doesn't go into the mine looking for dirt. He goes in looking for the gold. And that's exactly the same in a small group. You're gathering people. And do you know what? Small groups are a messy environment. But you're not looking for the mess. You're looking to see God do something really special in ordinary people's lives, just ordinary people like you. And there is no such thing as a perfect small group. You think, oh man, you should see my small group. No, no, your, your small group might be good compared to some of the other small groups. In fact, he was my first small group in Edinburgh. This is how our church got started. Uh, there's me, the dodgy hairstyle. And then uh, there's a group of us there. And, and that, that was literally, that was how Destiny Church, Edinburgh, got started. It started in my living room at Haymarket and it just got going. Me and Ange were it and we looked after these folks and we just, and do you know what? It was rough at the edges. There was one guy there uh, who constantly kept backsliding, falling back into drinking and binge drinking and, and living crazy. We, we faced some challenges with people with marital issues or relationship issues, uh, different sin issues going on in people's lives they were battling with. Remember one time we'd actually run an alpha course and we put out hundreds and hundreds of flyers around the community trying to get people along. And Angie, my wife, she cooked all this chicken so that we were expecting about 20 people to come. We had all this food ready. Uh, but on the night, one guy came, just one guy. And he was kind of vaguely a Christian already, so he, and he wasn't really looking for a new church. And he, and he ate our chicken. And as he sat there in our dining room, he peed himself on my dining room floor. <laughs> wow, this is a, I mean, to tell you, this, this, this was how the church got started. And I'm here to say that nothing much has changed. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Honestly, true story. I wouldn't make that one up. That's just weird. I know, it was weird. But that's how the church got started. Uh, and that's what small groups like. Small groups messy. Small groups not tidy. Small groups awkward sometimes. Small groups, you've got awkward people. Sometimes you've got strange things going on. Sometimes you've got people who are going through big challenges. Sometimes you've got to rally around someone because they really need you at that moment. And that's what small group is. But in that environment, God uses it to transform life. So forming, say forming. That's stage one. One, two. Two is maturing. And this is when the, the group starts developing and they get into the rhythm of teaching, breaking bread, fellowship, and prayer. They're really praying now. And they're starting to move the spiritual gifts in the small group meeting. And what they're being taught now is, is that the small group leader would, at this stage, encourage the small group members to, you know what, take responsibility for each other. So when one of the, the church members ends up in hospital with an operation, guess what the other members of the small group do? They visit them in hospital. They provide meals for the family while they're going through that hard time. We've had many stories in church where people lose their job and they haven't got the money to pay the rent that, Sunday, that, 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 that month. And the, guess who chips in? The small group digs deep and gives and chips in and helps make them through that month. This is how small group operate. This is, this is being, this is doing Christianity. This is being disciples. I don't just talk about being disciples, but who are actually being disciples. This is maturing. Lifeway Research, again, um, the, the research organization, they did a research study into 3,000 churches and they asked them different questions and they found a whole lot of findings, but let me just give you some of the highlights. 67% of small group attenders read their Bible regularly compared to 27% of those who do not attend small group. 
64% of small group attenders pray for the church and leaders regularly compared to 30% of non-small group attenders. 69% of small group attenders would say they feel close to God and 74% says that they understand the Bible better because of small group, directly because of small group. Not just because they go on a Sunday to church, but because they connect in a small group environment. And again, last week we said that the difference is this. What's the difference between hearing the Bible taught on a Sunday and then hearing, doing a Bible study in a small group? Here's the difference, big difference. There's not much interaction here, right? You know, you're not chipping in your questions or your comments. This is just, you're just listening. If there was interactions, we'd be here to midnight, okay? So we're probably not going to do that. But this, this is not so much of an interactive environment. I'm just sharing stuff. And also, I can say, who pray, cared, share? Remember that? I was doing the recap. Who pray, cared, share? And you can all go, ah, I didn't do that. I'll just not give them eye contact just now. And you can get away with things in a group. But what happens in a small group? In a small group, they go around the room and say, all right, tell us how you pray, cared, share this week. And you think, man. And you're, all of a sudden, you're accountable. And all of a sudden, you don't get away with doing the Christian thing that you just say stuff. But all of a sudden, you have to be who you say you are. Ah. It's amazing, and it transforms your life, and it's exactly what God wants for you because he loves you that much. He doesn't want you to be lukewarm and just ticking over. He wants you to be all that he intends you to be. So this is a important maturing, and maturing, will, it'll take between six and 18 months, we reckon. But here's the difficulty. Many small groups have got stuck in stage two. The 35 small groups we've got in the church, most of them are stuck stage two. And it's not like six to 18 months. It's like six to 18 years they've been in stage two, okay? It's time to multiply. That's a very long pregnancy. Time to multiply, honey. Okay, so it, actually what God wants is for this. And here's what happens in a small group. If a small group gets started, gathers some people, and then is there, and you're all excited. Oh, look at the number. We've got 15 people now. Hey. I tell you what, if you don't launch soon, guess what will happen? The growth will come. And then the growth will go and you'll be back down to five again because people come and go. That's what happens. People move into the city or move away or people relocate in the city. And I tell you what, there's no better time than right now to launch a new group. Just go for it. And yeah, you could, you could, you could say, oh, but we need to grow a bit bigger before we launch. No, no, just launch. Just go for it. Just raise up a leader and launch with that leader and see God do great things. And by the way, that's what happens in the maturing stages. The small group leader identifies an apprentice and the apprentice will go on to become the next small group that plants out. And we, we will provide training. We, we, first of all, we go through the According to the Pattern membership course. And then we do a, a course called Five. It lasts for five weeks. It's a leadership training course we do as a, as a team. And they get centralized training. But on the ground in the small group, the apprentice is getting an opportunity to lead a Bible study or do a hospital visit. Or, so they've got on-the-ground training as well as centralized training. Maturing is so important. And then stage number three is multiplying. Say Multiplying. So the group forms, like Jesus gathered his group, and then the group matures, and then that should only last um, six to 18 months. And then there comes a point where you've got to decide, right, now we're going to multiply. And the multiplying stage is the time where you replicate the group for the benefit of others. This is the moment where you decide on, okay, hey group, we're going to be launching on this date. You give them a date, you start the countdown timer, and in this place. A time and a place. And we're going to start this small group on this time. And here's going to be the leader who's been my apprentice. And they're now going to lead a group. And then every week in that final stage, every week when the small group meets, every week you pray for the launch. You pray, wow, Lord, bless that launch. And you're building towards it collectively. And you're getting excited. But this is not about splitting a group of friends. This is about planting. And that's exciting. So multiplying. And you know what? Jesus did exactly these three things. Jesus formed a group of people. He spent three years maturing that group of people. And at the end of that period, he launched them out and said, now you go, disciples, you go and make disciples. So one, two, three, very simple. The difficulty is we have many myths about maturity. Anyone seen Mythbusters, uh, Discovery Channel program? Nathan, where's Nathan? Nathan's here. You and Nathan see everything. Uh, Mythbusters Discovery Channel, okay? And, and in, in Mythbusters, they, they take things that we believe they're held to and uh, they kind of say, well, really, is that the case? So, for example, um, how long does chewing gum stay in your stomach if you swallow chewing gum? 
What, what, what have you all heard? Seven years, that's right. Yeah, where do we hear that from? But I, I'm not the only one who's heard that. I've heard that. A lot of people believe this. And this is a myth. Myth buses blew apart and they showed you that it doesn't stay in your stomach for seven years. <laughs> Huge big dollop of goo, right? But it just passes right through you like a bit of chicken wood, okay? It does not hang around. So myth buses blew that apart. Here's another myth. Will you stay drier if you run if it's raining or if you walk while it's raining? What do you all think? Who thinks you'll be drier if you run? Hands up. Okay. Well, you know what? You're at least being honest. None of you put your hands up. A few of you put your hands up. But you all know that you run when, when it's raining. I said, I don't care whether you put your hand up or not. You do believe that. It's raining. Run. Mythbusters blew apart the myth. Apparently, you will, not get any, you will not stay any drier by running than you would if you walked. And you're going to be thinking about that every time now it's raining. <laughs> Mythbusters. Well, let me tell you a Christian myth, and it's the Christian maturity myth. And um, let me just introduce you to that myth by taking you to a Bible verse. Uh, Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11, 12, and 13. Say 11, 12, 13. Okay, this is what it says in Ephesians 4, 11, 12, 13. Verse 11. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and the teachers. Okay. Let's call them the mentors, the apostles, the prophets, evangelists, pastors. They're the mentors, the people who mentor the church. Okay? Verse 12, to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. Now, if you had a New King James translation, the word service is replaced with another word, ministry. So it says to equip God's people for ministry. Who's the ministers in the church? God's people. You know, and the old view of church is that the minister's the guy at the front with the dog collar, and he does everything. Well, that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says, actually, the mentors are there to equip God's people to do the ministry. So you have to do the ministry, God's people. You're the ministers, say ministers. Okay, so you got number, verse 11 is the mentors, verse 12 is the ministers, and then verse 13, it says, until we all reach the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to become mature, say mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. So here we've got the maturity. So verse 11 says you have the mentors. Verse 12 says you have the ministers, that's us, God's people. And then verse 13 says the result will be maturity. But here's the problem in the UK. We can't count. Instead of going 11, 12, 13, we go 11, 13, 12. That's what we do. Because what in effect we do in all our churches in the UK is this. We say, you have the mentors and they wait until you mature. And when you mature, then we'll release you to minister. That's what they do. 11, 13, 12. But that's not what the Bible does. The Bible says 11, 12, 13. In other words, ministry doesn't come out of maturity. But rather maturity comes out of you doing ministry. Isn't that interesting? And that's a paradigm shift. And I believe in that. You see, mentors aren't meant to wait until you're mature before releasing you into ministry. And that's the maturity myth. That you need to be mature to minister. Ministry is not the result of maturity. Ministry, sorry, maturity is the result of ministry. And you look at the life of Jesus and he did this all the time. He took risks with people that we would not take risks with. So you look at Peter. You know, Peter was so impulsive all the way through, and at the end he denied Jesus. And then after the resurrection of Jesus, Jesus appeared to the disciples alive. And he's, what did he say to G- Peter? He didn't pull him aside and say, Peter, let me talk to you about, remember that time when you said you didn't know me? Remember the cockerel crowed? And you denied me. When it most counted, you denied me. He didn't do that, did he? Jesus didn't mention it once. All he did was simply say, do you love me? And Peter said, you know that I love you. And he said, well, feed my sheep, tend my lambs, look after my flock. Amazing. And within a few weeks, Peter stood up on the day of Pentecost and preached to 3,000 people. Then all of a sudden, the church grew and was birthed. It was the greatest moment in Peter's life. So seven weeks before, Peter had made the biggest failure of his life, denying Jesus. Seven weeks later, he has the biggest high point in his life, where he saw the church birth through a sermon that he preached. 
because Jesus takes risks with people that we wouldn't. There's an amazing moment in Mark chapter 5 where Jesus crosses over the other side of the ocean and he finds a demon-possessed man. You know the, the account. And the guy's hanging out at the tombs. And it's kind of like a horror movie. The guy's hanging out at the tombs and he's cutting himself with stones and he's got these demons in him. And then when Jesus lands on the shore, he, he says, Jesus, what have we... And he, and he starts crying out to Jesus. And Jesus starts taking authority over the demon. But then he, he says, what's your name? And he says, our name is Legion. Or our name is Legion or something like that. And, and it's because there's 3,000 of demons in this guy. Now, I mean, I've heard of demon possession, but that's like really demon possessed. Like 3,000 demons, that's pretty severely demon possessed. I, I don't know, but that seems pretty extreme to me. Now, you imagine this. Jesus cast the demons out of this guy, and then the guy is being totally set free. He's clear thinking all of a sudden, and, and he says, Jesus, what, what next? Can I follow you? And Jesus said, no, listen, this is what I want you to do. Let me read it to you. Mark 5. Go home to your people and report to them the great thing that the Lord has done for you and how he's had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in Decapolis the great things that Jesus had done for him. And everyone was amazed. You think about it. You think about it. One minute, this guy is demon-possessed with 3,000 demons. And the next minute, Jesus is giving him evangelistic responsibility for a region. Seriously, Jesus? Do not think he might have a few residual issues? <laughs> you never switch like kind of get that put the hatchet away you know a Christian now you know seriously do you not think he's he's got some issues or some stuff some warpedness within him still you've got to deal with some Jesus apparently had great confidence in the power of God to deliver people and here's a guy who was demon possessed one minute and the next minute Jesus is giving him evangelistic responsibility for a region and according to the Bible good choice he did a great job isn't that amazing I think wow you see, Jesus doesn't call the qualified, he qualifies the called. Jesus is this amazing way of working with people. And you might say, well, but Peter, surely you can't take risks with people because do they not have problems? What, like, not like you? <laughs> like, you, you're perfect and you have no issues. Oh, come on. Not one of us would be used by God if it were to do with our ability to stay perfectly on track all the time. You know, and the truth is this, I grew most taking on responsibility, not just sitting in a classroom. You, know, you can sit in a classroom and learn things, but I tell you, I grew most taking on responsibility. I remember I became a Christian when I was 15. When I was 17, I was given responsibility looking after a small group of youth in the little traditional church that I grew up in in Glasgow. And I looked after this, this small group of youth, and I tell you what, it caused me to grow in my faith. And then when I was 21, we started this church as a small group in my living room. And I have to tell you, one of the best things I did for my faith was start a church. I would highly recommend it if you want to grow in your faith, start a church. It's a great, read your Bible, pray, and start a church. It will really cause you to grow. And it causes you to grow because, do you know what? You have no option. Okay? It's like, wow, all these people are looking to me. I've got to stay at least two steps ahead of them. So that motivates you to grow in your faith. And I tell you what, it's great. Can't mess up because like hundreds of people are coming now. Okay, just going to keep walking with the Lord. That's good. That's good. Take on responsibility. It will cause you to be transformed more than you could just sitting in a classroom learning more information about what it means to look like or what it looks like to be mature. You'll be mature. You see, many churches have the philosophy, we can do it and you, you can help. But I think the best model and probably a more biblical model is you can do it, and we can help you. You see, the way to view the Sunday gathering, is don't think of the Sunday gathering, like, let's use a football analogy, Sunday gathering, oh, this is game time. No, no, this isn't game time. Sunday gathering is like the halftime talk with the coach. It's like, all right, get your slices of orange, get your drinks, let's sit down, team, let's talk about how it's gone in the last half. Right, here's what we're going. The next half is coming. Get ready. Here's some things to work on. And then game time, second half kicks off. That's Monday to Saturday. That's the game. The game isn't the Sunday. This is the coaching time. This is the halftime chat. This is getting ready for Monday. Jesus is calling you 
to go and make disciples. And I don't want you to get to the end of it all saying, hey, Jesus, I had a great life. Thank you very much. I had great hobbies. I had a job. I had a family. I, I did all these things. I traveled to some places. It was quite cool to see the world you made. Thanks, Jesus. And, he's, and he says, well, you know what? You're saved. I love you. I died for you. You're saved. But I actually asked you to do one thing. Remember? I said, go and make disciples. I know you enjoyed a holiday and you did all... And you think, well, Peter, that's fine for you to say you're a professional Christian guy. You've got all the time to do this. Well, you know, I, I did this while working full-time as an architect. That's how the church got started. I juggled this as well. I believe in this. I believe in this with all my heart. This is not, oh, I'm not called into the ministry to be a pastor. No, no. You're called to be a disciple that makes disciples. You're called to be a follower of Jesus that helps others find and follow Jesus. This is your calling. And I just want you to stand before him with hands full. I don't want you to stand with hands empty, saved, you're right, saved, sure saved, because you're not saved based on what you do, you're saved based on what he did. But as you stand before him, you're standing with hands full, thinking, Jesus, I had the privilege of introducing these people to you. And that's an awesome thing. So, simple as one, two, three. Forming groups, maturing groups, multiplying groups. Why are we going from 35 to 53 small groups in the next few months? Because we want this experience to be available to everyone in this growing church so that people can become mature followers of Jesus. Why are we launching new locations? Why don't we just stay in our existing locations? It would be far less hassle. Because we really believe that discipleship is all about being born pregnant. It's about multiplying who we are and what God has done among us. You know, many of you won't have heard of uh, Jimmy Wales or Langy Sanger. And many of you also won't have heard of Newpedia. You'll have heard of Wikipedia, but you probably haven't heard of Newpedia. But way back in 2000, Jimmy Wales and Larry Sanger started Newpedia, which was an online encyclopedia. And they had a, a panel of experts who wrote encyclopedia articles, which would go through a stringent review process and would eventually be published on this online encyclopedia. By the end of three years, by 2003, they had successfully published 24 articles and 75 were currently in the review process. Jimmy Wales and Larry Sanger realized this was pretty slow progress. So actually, at very early on stage, they launched Wikipedia, which we now all know of. And within a short space of time, in one year, they had the public, general public, submit articles. And within a year, they had 21,000 articles. And today, apparently, there are over 17 million Wikipedia articles, which, according to an independent survey, are pretty much as accurate as any other published encyclopedia, even though it's written by the public. It's incredible. But the point is this. You have the experts trying to produce articles in a three-year period, and they succeed in publishing 24. And then you have empower the public, and you keep the standards high. You still have a stringent review process. But all of a sudden, you have 17 million Wikipedia pages on our hands and available to the world. And the question is, do we want to be a church that's Newpedia or a church that's Wikipedia? Do we want to be a church that, you know, we'll do it, you can help, or do we want to be a church that you'll do it, and we'll do everything we can to empower you and equip you to live this life that Jesus called you to live. I know what's more biblical. So in conclusion, you know, I am absolutely convinced that you being in a small group that goes through the one, two, and the three, then maybe within a year or within two years, goes through one, two, three again, I am convinced that you being in a small group that goes through stages one, two, and three every year and a half, two years, that that will have more of an impact in our church and in our city than even my preaching could in this church. I believe it is the thing that will have the biggest impact in this church. So I've just got three questions for you. So first question, how many of you plan on being around or think you're going to be around and alive nine years from now? Okay. If you're not sure, ask your neighbor. Okay. Dan's giving you the answer, Rachel, to that question. Yes, yeah, okay, yes, you are. Great. 
Nine years from now. Okay, so the next question. Now, you knew the answer to that one, I hope. Okay, you're going to be around nine years from now? Yeah. Okay, next question. And you probably won't have the answer for this one, but let me ask it anyway. How many people do you plan and how many people do you have as a goal to influence for Jesus in the next nine years? You probably don't have an answer to that. It's a good question. Okay, and the next question you probably don't have an answer for, but you might give it a stab, is, okay, that's how many people you want to influence for Jesus in the next nine years. Okay, what's your strategy for influencing that many people for Jesus in the next nine years? <laughs> well, I don't know. I've not thought about that. You know, I guess if they come to me, I'll, I'll tell them what Christianity is about. Listen, Pastor, I don't know. You ask me all these questions. I don't know the answer to these questions. I'll just live a great life and they'll be really impressed and they'll want to know what Jesus is all about. But just because just I've, I've lived a, a morally good life. Okay, listen, I'll put a fish on the back of my car. That's my strategy. I'll put a fish on the back of my car. Okay, you know, how about this? If you don't have a plan for the next nine years, or you don't have a very credible plan for the next nine years, or if you can come up with a better plan, you feel free to come to me with it. But until you come up with a better plan, can I suggest you have this plan? that you plug yourself into a small group and you're a disciple. A small group which every year to two years does the stages one, two, and three, and then guess what it does again? It then goes back to stage one, two, and three. Just the one, two, threes. And did you know that if you did that, if you were in a small group and you were committed to a small group, which every year to two years started another small group, and then it went through stages one, two, three, and then every, maybe 18 months later, it started another small group. Then 18 months later, it started another small group. If you were in that for nine years, you would have been involved in directly influencing about 640 individuals with your life if you did that. So I think that's a pretty good plan. And I think it's a pretty achievable plan. So let's just do this plan. Let's flow together. So I'm just going to end with a personal challenge to all of you. On your seats, you've got a welcome card. Now, listen, maybe you're not sure, maybe you're first time along tonight, maybe you're not sure this is the church for you. Okay, that's cool. Maybe I've totally put you off tonight. Think, wow, they actually believe this stuff. They're actually going to do something about the Bible. I know, I know, it's crazy. The idea that we really believe God is alive and he actually wants to do something. I understand it's a novel idea, but... Maybe you're not sure this is the right church for you. That's cool. No pressure. And, you know, feel free to fill one of these cards in any way and say, hey, I'd like to find out more about the church or, uh, you know, can I get connected in some way? Feel free to fill one of these and we'd love to connect with you. But let me, let me just put it this way. If, if you're thinking, okay, this is, this is where I want to be. This is the church I want to be in. Then here's what I'd ask you. Don't just come on a Sunday. Go to a small group through the week. And I would ask just simply in a moment, Fill in your details and tick the box that says, on the back, it says small groups, tick. And you can write, now, and what we'll do is we'll do everything we can to try and connect you with a small group. Now, bear in mind, we're creating a crisis. We have about 35 small groups in the church, which already is not big enough for the size of church we are. So if you all sign up, we're going to have a crisis, and we're going to have very full living rooms in our small groups for the next wee while. But I don't mind creating a crisis as long as you're okay with that, because I think it's quite cool to create a crisis, because it makes all the small group leaders freak out and have to do stage three. So how many people are up for freaking the small group leaders out? Give me a high five. High five. I'm not just going to do it myself. Give me a high five. Thank you. So we, we, we freak out the small group leaders. So sign up for a small group. Or maybe you're saying, Pete, listen, it's not that easy. I can't get out and about. Maybe I've got kids or whatever. For whatever reason, I can't get out easily to small group. But hey, I'd like to connect with a small group and I've got a living room. You're welcome to run a small group for my house. Well, tick the small group box and right beside it, I have a living room. All right? Or maybe you're here and you're thinking, do you know what? Actually, I think I could help lead a small group. Well, listen, we would love you to put your name forward for that. And if you want to tick the box saying small groups then we will work with you and go on a journey. You go through a membership course first, according to the pattern. Then we'll take you through our, our five leadership training, sure. But we can do some of the journey as you're moving into small group leadership. Either way, 
put your name down, let us know, and we'll connect with you. We will do everything we can in the next two days, tomorrow or the day after, to talk to you about your response and help you get connected in some meaningful way. How about that? Deal? We're going to pray. And as we pray, I want you to prayerfully consider what your response is going to be. Father, thank you so much that we're in your presence and thank you that you love us. And Jesus, thank you that you did call us to be a... You said, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And I believe tonight you say to this precious bunch of people, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. So Lord, for those who are here tonight who are not yet followers of Jesus, I pray tonight you'd give them the courage to become followers of Jesus. For those who are followers of Jesus, but they're not yet fishing for others. They're disciples, but they're not yet making disciples. I pray, God, tonight you'd help them just simply to connect in a small group that multiplies. And I pray that that environment for them would be a life-changing environment. So just in his presence, make your own response. Pray your own prayer. Talk to him about what's in your heart. While people are praying, let me just give you this opportunity. If you're here tonight and you haven't yet decided to become a follower of Jesus, then why not make the biggest decision of your life just now? Why not choose in this moment to follow Jesus, the one who died for you and rose again? If that's you this evening, let me help you take that step. I'm going to lead you in a prayer. And I very simply invite you to repeat this prayer after me, just one line at a time, under your breath. Pray, dear Lord God, thank you so much for your love for me. Jesus, thank you for being willing to die for me on the cross and rise again. Thank you, you're alive right now. This evening, Lord, I make a commitment to you. I put my faith in you trust you to be my saviour I make a choice but from now on I'm going to be a follower of yours Jesus take first place in my life be lord of my life thank you for hearing my prayer so that's you this evening and you prayed that prayer and you made that decision I would love the privilege of praying for you as you embark on this new journey with God. If that's you this evening, in order to know who I'm praying for, if you're here tonight and you made that decision, just pop your hand up and say, I did that tonight. I prayed that prayer. Is there anyone like that this evening? I'll just wait for a moment. Is there anyone like that? It's a big decision. It's a great decision. thank you so much for my dear friend this evening who in this moment is committing himself to being a follower of Jesus thank you you've heard his prayer thank you you accept him I pray strengthen him for the days ahead let this be a great adventure with God thank you Lord Amen